I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 36, Plato's Parmenides and Metaphysics. In our series on Plato, the father of Western esotericism, we've been concentrating on aspects of the other Plato, the Plato who's fallen between the cracks of philosophical analysis. This is the Plato of the mysteries, the Plato of religious devotion, the Plato of myths and oracular truth, the Plato whose Socrates listens to the voice of his inner daimonion telling him not to do things, and falls into strange trance states where he's oblivious to the phenomenal world around him. All this, we have seen, is philosophy. While we as modern interpreters might wish to define philosophy narrowly as the pursuit of arguments about the nature of things, For Plato, it is clearly something more like a way of life, encompassing the search for truth in more old-school ways as well, as through myths and altered states of consciousness. But the picture we've been painting of Plato has been very one-sided. There's a heck of a lot of argumentation in the dialogues, which we haven't mentioned at all. Now, we don't want to give the impression that Plato only uses myths, or that Socrates' daimonion is the whole point of the character of Socrates. But there's not much point in our trying to cover this more analytically accessible Plato, the Plato of arguments and logical chains of reasoning, the Plato who's been called the father of rationalism, since so many other scholars have done such a good job of addressing this Plato. And anyway, we're concentrating on the Platonic sources most important to the specific currents of Western esotericism, which has traditionally tended to ignore more straightforward dialogues like the Euthyphro or the Lysis. There is one aspect of Plato's metaphysical work, which we might call part of his hard philosophical project, which is absolutely essential to the history of Western esotericism, and in this, our penultimate episode on the great Plato, we shall be addressing it. The case in question is that of Plato's dialogue, The Parmenides, and of the so-called metaphysical reading of The Parmenides, an interpretive turn which forever affected Western esoteric thought, and indeed Western thought more generally. We're entering into dangerous waters here. The Parmenides is, by general consent, the single most difficult dialogue to interpret, and that's saying something. Readings of the Parmenides occupy a wide spectrum, from scholars who see it as the later Plato deconstructing and abandoning his own theory of forms, having realized that it doesn't actually work, or others who see it as a kind of logical exercise for fun, or as a commentary on the limitations of pure dialectic. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have readers like Plotinus, Proclus, Ficino, and the Tübingen Schule, who see it as an exhibition of Plato's most difficult and sublime metaphysics, in the most distilled and pure form. For these readers, it is in the Parmenides that Plato comes as close as anywhere to laying out his system of metaphysics, assuming he has one, of course. No one can then agree on the details of that system, so all the late Platonists had different interpretations of the Parmenides, and of course, modern scholars do too. But this general school of thought, this general approach to the Parmenides as a metaphysical text, can at least agree that here Plato is telling us about the higher levels of reality and their mutual interrelationships. And this reading of the Parmenides is of the utmost centrality to Western esotericism. Now, a dialogue with so many radically different readings out there must have some pretty wild things to say, so we should have a look at the dialogue itself in this episode. 
Here at the Schwepp, we always recommend that our listeners go and read the primary sources. But in this case, realistically, we can only recommend the Parmenides to folks with a serious head for logic in a rather dry and brutalist form. That being said, if you love a good paradox, and who doesn't, then the Parmenides may be for you. We'll aim in this episode to give a fairly just taster, and maybe you can try to judge whether the potent savors of Plato's metaphysical coup de grace are for you or not. The Parmenides is not a page-turner, but it will give you the mental equivalent of a brutal three-hour workout, which will appeal to some people. Before we go through the dialogue, though, and before looking at the metaphysical reading thereof, we can tell a story which, although it won't be exactly right in all the details, will give us a direction of travel. Here we go. It's a story about modern reading of Plato, but it also leads us back to the late Platonists of late antiquity. In 1928, the Oxford scholar E.R. Dodds published one of those articles which change everything. The Parmenides and the Neoplatonic One was a, a serious piece of work, especially coming as it did at a time when late Platonism was hardly a respectable subject of study. And I should just note here that the Schwepp tends to prefer the neutral term late Platonism to the more value-laden Neoplatonism, but listeners should know that we mean exactly the same philosophical movement as Dodds is discussing in his article, interpreters of Plato who, from Plotinus onward, took a particularly metaphysical stance and read Plato in a particular way. Dodds's article appeared in a period when academe took a dismissive view of these late antique philosophers, which will resonate with students of Western esotericism. Why would anyone want to study the decadent, superstitious, feeble thinkers of the dark period of late antiquity when one could study the glories of 5th century Athens? This is how the thinking went. And it's partly due to Dodds and the scholars of his generation that these philosophers, the late Platonists, have now been firmly placed on the map of scholarly study and made part of the curriculum generally known in the English-speaking world as classics. But when Dodds put his article out in volume 22 of the Classical Quarterly, this stuff was very much on the fringes of the discipline. A bit like the study of occult sciences is now in the history of culture more generally. So what was so special about this article? Dodds had done his reading, for one thing. He points out the general background point that the Parmenides is very baffling. It's read by some scholars of his day as an elaborate philosophical jest on Plato's part, but the late Platonists found in it an exposition of positive metaphysics. Dodds then goes on to examine pretty much all the evidence from antiquity. Platonists, both early and late, and the body of doctrines known as Neopythagorean, a speculative tendency to which we shall be devoting several episodes in the not-too-distant future. He musters all this evidence to show that the key move which characterizes late Platonism is the interpretation of the second half of the dialogue with the Parmenides as an exposition of metaphysics. In other words, the metaphysical reading of the Parmenides is basically the characteristic late Platonist strategy, its defining feature. He shows this through, among other things, parallel passages from the Parmenides and Plotinus, showing how the great master of late Platonism uses Plato's Parmenides as a kind of manual of doctrine on the nature of the higher realities. Dodds's claims in the article have been widely accepted, and it stands as a monument of scholarship of late Platonism, having advanced the field considerably and remaining absolutely required reading for anyone who wants to approach these authors. Now, let's turn to the dialogue itself. The Parmenides 
is generally thought to be a late dialogue. So after pretty much all the Platonic dialogues we've been discussing in the podcast, most of which were works of Plato's middle period, with a bit of early thrown in. Hence, the popular reading of the Parmenides as an anti-theory of forms work. The idea is that Plato had played with this theory of forms for years, and probably decades, tried it this way, tried it that way, but decided finally that it just didn't work. So in the Parmenides, he's officially destroying it. But how does he do this? Well, the dialogue structure is pretty fascinating, so let's look at that first. We're in the more distant past than is usual in a Platonic dialogue. The historical Parmenides, for it is indeed he, the subject of our episode 20. The historical Parmenides was born around the year 510 BCE and lived, we're not quite sure how long. The historical Socrates lived from 469 BCE to 399. So Plato has the elderly Parmenides coming to Athens and meeting the very young Socrates. This may have actually been historically possible, and a lot of scholarly ink has flown over the chronological possibilities here, but we don't have to worry about that for our purposes. We see in the dialogue a reversal of the usual Socratic role. Here, the older philosopher, Parmenides, schools the young Socrates, but using classic Socratic method. He asks him questions, gets him to assent to points, and then shows that his ideas inevitably lead to contradictions, leaving him skewered on the shaft of logic. Also present in the dialogue is Zeno of Elia, for it is he, the historical disciple of Parmenides, who is famous for all the wonderful paradoxes which have been blowing minds since the 5th century. These are things like the famous paradox of the tortoise and Achilles, or the paradox of the arrow, which prove that motion is impossible. So we have the elder Parmenides, who we remember expressed his philosophy about the unity of being in the form of a hexameter narrative poem telling of a journey in the company of goddesses. And we also have his disciple Zeno, who was a real guy and expressed his master's teachings more in the form we traditionally associate with philosophy. He made basically arguments attacking the idea that there could be multiplicity or change of any kind, and thus tried to show that being must be one, eternal, changeless, and so on. There's also a frame narrative. A certain Cephalus is the narrator, and he introduces the dialogue with a rather elaborate story, basically telling about how he heard from this guy who heard it from that guy who heard it from a guy who was actually there, that the young Socrates had met with Parmenides, and he, Cephalus, would like to hear what was said on that occasion. So Cephalus is telling an unnamed listener, or perhaps telling us, his audience, what he heard when he asked about Socrates' encounter with the father of metaphysics. So as often, Plato is removing us several steps from the notional action of the dialogue. We're in a frame within a frame within a frame. Now, the stage being set, it might be helpful to divide the dialogue up structurally into two parts. In the first main section, the young Socrates advances his ideas about forms. He basically gives a of the theory of forms, or the closest you'll get to that with Plato. There must exist such a thing as the beautiful and being in and of themselves, in which all the particular beautiful things and existing things and so on must participate. In this section, Socrates, and perhaps the theory of forms itself, gets it in the neck. Parmenides uses Socratic argumentation to eviscerate the idea step by step, until we imagine Socrates as a sort of mere husk of his usual self, 
twitching on the ground. Actually, in fact, the whole thing is carried out with great humor and goodwill. And Parmenides is depicted as rather a Socratic character in this respect as well. He's inexorable, but at the same time he's affable and he we get a sense that he's after the truth, first and foremost, rather than trying to score points against Socrates. Nevertheless, he does a number on the forms, leaving Socrates in aporia. And interested listeners may wish to check out Peter Adamson's podcast on the first part of the Parmenides, the part we're talking about. There's a link in the notes to this episode, and you can get the gory details there. But it's the second part of the Parmenides, which is of central concern to us as scholars of Western esotericism, because it's here that out of the impenetrable thickets of intense dialectical argumentation emerged the distinctive metaphysics of late Platonism, which are central to the metaphysical picture of the universe, which develops in Western esotericism. Absolutely essential. This second section of the dialogue was traditionally discussed in terms of three hypotheses about the one. Each hypothesis takes a proposition and follows a chain of reasoning to see what results from that proposition. So the first hypothesis, which is probably the most problematic, starts from the premise, if the one exists, the one cannot be many or multiple. Now remember, the one, the one we're talking about, or at least the one we're evoking in this dialogue, is the entity which lies at the center of the thought of the historical Parmenides making him perhaps into the first Western monist, that's someone who claims that all of reality is one, and that multiplicity and difference is somehow not really real. But we shouldn't assume that Plato's presentation of the one in the dialogue accurately reflects Parmenides' own thought about the one. Although we shouldn't assume that it doesn't, either. What is clear, anyway, is that Plato is referencing Parmenides' work. When his readers read the dialogue, they're expected to know that Parmenides had written this amazing poem about the one, and that this one is some kind of ultimate metaphysical reality. As for the question of Plato accurately reflecting Parmenides, I suspect that the cryptic hexameter poem being what it is, we might not arrive at a consensus about what Parmenides meant, even if we had his poem in all its glory, but we only have fragments. As Plotinus says in the Enneads, Plato's Parmenides speaks more clearly than the Parmenides of history. Whatever the relation between the two, the point for us is what Plotinus and later Platonists would make of Parmenides, and it was essentially the Parmenides of Plato that they were concerned with. So, three hypotheses about the one, which modern analytical philosophers usually divide instead into eight deductions or chains of reasoning. Being analytic philosophers, they like to chop things into smaller pieces. But we will be considering the hypotheses, as this way of dividing the second half of the dialogue up reflects the way Plotinus and his successors read it. To give a flavor of the hypotheses without unduly lengthening this episode, let's have a look at just the first hypothesis and see how it goes. Parmenides, having given Socrates a serious rinsing in the first episode of the dialogue, has concluded at 136 that Socrates needs to train himself in dialectic by framing hypotheses and then seeing what would result if they were true and what would result if they were false. Zeno encourages this approach, saying, quote, For the many are unaware that without this discursive movement and wandering through all things, it's impossible that noose will come to attain to the truth. The dialectical process, then, has to be gone through. Here, as often, Plato is insisting on the practice of philosophy. The truth is not something one can just read about, memorize, and then 
be a master of henceforth, one must put in the work. Putting in the work is part of attaining to the truth. So whatever Plato's intent in the dialogue is, at least partly, it must be to get his readers to think, to engage with logical dialectic at its most intense as some kind of educational measure. So Parmenides agrees to expound the nature of the one dialectically, with the young Aristotle as his interlocutor. Socrates is off the hook now. Presumably he was exhausted by the dialogue's first section. This Aristotle, sadly, isn't our Aristotle. He seems to be a young nobleman associated with the 30 tyrants of Athens, who just happens to have the same name as Plato's great student Aristotle. His job in the dialogue is basically to have a rapid-fire mini-deductions bounced off him in quick succession, to which he responds, sometimes by agreeing, and sometimes by asking for further clarification, which Parmenides then gives, and occasionally, too, he disagrees and sort of sends Parmenides back to the drawing board, but never for long. He's basically putty in the master's hands. So I'm going to look at the conclusions about the one that Parmenides and Aristotle reach together in the first hypothesis, but I'm going to leave out the reasoning. We're just going to stick to the propositions that are agreed on. It's been noted by many scholars that much of the reasoning in the dialogue is faulty, and some suggest that this is intentional, again, to make Plato's readers do the work of finding out the fallacies. And with Plato, this seems perfectly plausible to me. But interested parties will need to consult the text themselves. We're going to concentrate on agreed conclusions, right? So the first hypothesis of the Parmenides goes something like this, starting from 137c. If the one exists, it cannot be many. It cannot have parts, because parts are manyness. It can have no beginning, middle, or end, because these are sort of parts. It cannot have any form, schema, not the same word as is used for the forms in Plato's theory of forms. This is another word. It means something like shape or form or arrangement. The one is infinite or unbounded, aperon. It cannot be anywhere, either in itself or in anything else. It cannot move or change, because it is akinaton, unmoving. The term movement in Greek philosophy is often synonymous with change, since every change was, to the Greek way of thinking, definable as a movement of some kind. So when they say movement, they usually mean the concept we would discuss as change. Back to our quote. The one is not in itself, and is not in the same. Ento auto in Greek, it's very difficult to figure out what this means, but it has something to do with sameness and identity. So the one is neither in motion, nor is it at rest. It is not with something else, nor is it with itself. It's not the same as itself. That is, the one is not self-identical. Now here we're getting to the first of Parmenides' truly paradoxical statements. How can it not be self-identical? How can something not be the same as itself? The one cannot be like or unlike anything, including itself. It cannot be equal to itself, nor unequal to itself, or to anything else. It cannot exist in time at all. And since the verb to be is always expressive of time, i.e. is, was, will be, um, a verb in an Indo-European language simply has tense and it always has a time element attached to it, since the verb to be is always expressive of time, the one cannot have being at all either. That's the Greek ousia, since it's outside of time, and therefore you can't say it is, it was, or it will be. So the one is not at all. So it can't even be one. So therefore, there is no description 
knowledge, perception, or opinion about it. So now we're at the end of the hypothesis. The one has been stripped of nearly every conceivable attribute, including existence itself and including the name one. Is it possible, asks Parmenides, that all this is true about the one? Aristotle says no. So Parmenides says, okay, let's go over it again. This is at 142a in the dialogue. And so begins the second hypothesis of the Parmenides, this time concerning a hen-on, a one which has being, or a one existing, an existing one. The third hypothesis, again, at 155e, will discuss a one which partakes both of being and non-being, and is involved in generation and change in some fashion. Now, this is obviously baffling stuff. There are two points we should make about this material, though, which are crucial for the development of Western esotericism. The first has to do with the historical development of late Platonism, which we've already alluded to, and the second has to do with a much longer tradition of apophatic writing, which stems in part from late Platonism, but informs all the Abrahamic traditions, especially the esoteric Abrahamic traditions, and which has even resurfaced in postmodern thought about language and reality. But first, the late Platonist reading of the three hypotheses of the Parmenides as metaphysical theory. As Dodds's article shows, there are hints and adumbrations of a metaphysical reading of, of these passages from before Plotinus's time, which is the 3rd century CE. But it's Plotinus who makes the essential step of metaphysical interpretation on a grand scale. So what do we mean exactly by metaphysical, first of all? The idea of metaphysics comes from a work of Aristotle, that would be Aristotle's metaphysics, which deals with matters not covered in his plain old work, physics. So these things are meta ta physica, after physical matters. So the subjects which come next after you've discussed physics. Things like the nature of the universal nous, Aristotle's unmoved mover, and what are the primordial constituents of reality, the first principles. These are metaphysical questions. So stemming from Aristotle's works, then, the term metaphysics has become a general term for the supposed higher realities, which exist above or prior to or somehow beyond the realities of the everyday world. If we talk about a pineapple, for example, we're talking physics. But if we start to wonder about an immaterial reality which lies behind all pineapples, a form of pineapple, a pineappleness in itself, as Plato's been doing throughout his middle dialogues in his speculations on the forms, in this case, we're said to be dealing with metaphysics. So the key point here is that metaphysics deals or claims to deal with realities, but realities of a transcendent order. Now, the metaphysical reading of the Parmenides that we find in Plotinus and later Platonists, following his lead, takes it that the hypotheses are not explorations of logic for its own sake or explorations of language or anything like that, but rather rigorous descriptions of the nature of the highest realities. And, as it turns out, the three hypotheses of the dialogue correspond to three distinct hypostases, which is a Greek term which probably is best translated simply as realities, which are the universal metaphysical basis for all that is in Plotinus. In other words, there are three fundamental realities in the Platinian universe, and they are as follows. The first hypothesis describes the one, which is beyond being as Plato has already stated in The Republic. 
The one seems very difficult to describe in the Parmenides, since we've seen that it always is neither this nor that, and we can't really know anything about it. This, says Plotinus, is the nature of the first principle. The one is the source of all things, but it's not a thing. It's the source of being, but it doesn't itself have being. It's the origin of everything, but is itself no thing, or is itself nothing. The second one, the one being of the second hypothesis, is of course the noose for Plotinus, the universal intellect or mind which arises from the one. This reality does have being, and we can know it and talk about it. Indeed, it is itself the highest form of knowing, noesis. Finally, there's the one with being and not being, which partakes of generation in the third hypothesis. This is the soul, the reality inside which we live here in the material world. The soul arises from the noose, and the noose arises from the one. And this is the basic schema of the late Platonist universe. It will become a lot more elaborate with later thinkers, but for Plotinus, this unfolding of unities from the primordial unity is the way in which reality comes about. And this basic triad of one, noose, and soul will remain fundamental throughout the whole history of Platonism and have great influence on many other traditions like the Christians and the Gnostics. So this will be of great importance for Western esotericism, just for its own sake, in that it was very influential theory on a number of thinkers, not just the Platonists of late antiquity, but there's another way in which this reading is of central importance to our story. You may have guessed it already, especially if you listen to our episode 14 on mysticism. We don't know what the heck Plato meant by the later parts of the Parmenides, but one thing is clear. If you assume that the first hypothesis is describing some kind of divine reality, which is what the late Platonists assumed, then Plato has just invented negative theology, also known as apophatic language. So what is apophatic language? Well, do check out episode 14, but it wouldn't hurt to summarize again here, because this stuff is difficult and bears thinking about more than once. The Greek term apophasis, which can be literally translated as unsaying, is a technical way of referring to any text which claims to be trying to describe something which is literally undescribable. Let's say the Platinian One, or the ineffable God of the Christian theologians, and so uses language against itself to deny any predicates whatsoever to this transcendent non-reality. We've seen in the first hypothesis of the Parmenides a string of classic apophatic statements. The one is not in itself, nor is it in anything else. It cannot be, we cannot even say is about it, but of course we cannot talk about it without saying is. We can know nothing of it, yet here we are describing it. Apophatic language uses language in a kind of suicide mission where every statement aims to destroy another statement until all the statements are dead. And then what emerges? Perhaps a form of silence aiming at a synthesis which reaches the places language can't. It's questionable whether Plato believed in any reality that was absolutely beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend. Although we've seen many passages in earlier episodes which could be interpreted as referring to such an ineffable reality. We shall return to this question in a special episode with Professor Peter Adamson. But what is clear is that in late antiquity, such an ineffable reality becomes not only a thinkable option, it becomes, for many schools of thought, a positive necessity. Early Christian thinkers will spend a lot of time and thought on the problem of God's ineffability. 
So will the Gnostics, even more so in some cases. So will many Jewish thinkers. Some of the Hermetica get fairly deep into apophasis of the divine noose, placing it in a transcendent state beyond normal reality. And with the rise of Islam, we get a whole new radical approach to apophatic language, which gives this kind of writing a real shot in the arm. In late antiquity, then, a new idea is born, the idea of the unsayable. While this is a complex process of birth, it will take many, many episodes of this podcast for us to begin to paint its contours in any detail, but we can say with confidence, I think, that the text of Plato's Parmenides played a seminal role in launching the genre of apophatic writing, which is the only appropriate literary response to any ineffable reality. The option of silence, of course, remains, but silent philosophers don't write books, so we can't study them unless we're lucky enough to find one and submit to their tutelage. The beautiful commonality which holds true across all apophatic texts is that the text is at war with itself. In the Parmenides, we cannot say of the first one that it exists at all, nor can we say that it doesn't exist. And finally, we must conclude that, quote, Therefore, there is no description, knowledge, perception, or opinion of it. End of quote. Extending this kind of thinking, apophatic writers in the Western esoteric traditions will drive it to its limits. Anything we say of this transcendent reality, even to say that it is a reality, even to say that we can't say anything about it, even to say that it is nothing, all of these options are actually a betrayal of the idea of ineffability. As soon as you've named something, even to call it ineffable, you've broken the logical, strict meaning of what ineffable is supposed to mean. About the truly ineffable, there could only be silence. But our apophatic authors, from Plotinus onwards, refuse to be silent, luckily for us. And they search for mind-bending ways to speak the unspeakability of the one, or of God, or of the Ungrund, or of the unnameable, or of the Einsof, our always unsaying what they have said, and then often unsaying the unsaying, and unsaying the unsaying of the unsaying. Apophatic text is hard work. It messes with your head. And it may, in the final analysis, just be word games with no connection to reality. Just as some readers feel that the Parmenides is a logical game showing the inherent limits of rational language. But for Western esotericism, Apophasis is the linguistic means par excellence for teaching the mind not to think in categories when contemplating that which transcends categories, for not associating attributes with that which transcends attributes. It's a frustrating and fascinating genre, but no one said the path to transcendence would be easy. This brings our discussion of Plato's Parmenides to a close, with a brief window onto a work at the heart of an approach to reality which denies that it can actually be thought or spoken at all in its essence, while continuing to think and speak about it. This logical problem or dissonance lies at the heart of much of the thinking about the divine that we find in Western esotericism. And by studying Plato's Parmenides, I think we can access the most important early formulation of this genre. And that's regardless of what we think Plato's intentions were. He may not have been trying to write negative theology, but it is, in a sense, fair to say that he ended up writing negative theology, whether he meant to or not. This also brings our discussion of Plato to a close, or rather, it brings us near to the close of our Platonic series. It remains to consult one more time with the experts, 
and who better than Professor Peter Adamson, the host of the History of Philosophy podcast, to which we have been referring our listeners for a more level-headed assessment of Plato to balance the wacky stuff we've been covering in our show. In this next episode, we will bring the esoteric Plato face-to-face with the philosophic Plato in a no-holds-barred battle royale and see, with Professor Adamson's help, whether the two are really the same person. But, of course, it will emerge that there are even more Platos and things will get very interesting. So don't miss the next episode. And until then, if you feel your esotericness starting to slip, just remember that there is no description, knowledge, perception, or opinion of the one, and that will help you to stay esoteric.